Hey guys, Eric Olson here, and welcome to episode 21 of the Science Centric Podcast. If you haven't already, please leave us a review on whichever audio platform you're listening on. Reviews help us get noticed and help our audience grow. In this episode, we're delving into some controversial topics. In fact, I really couldn't think of more controversial topics than sex and gender and how the two relate to each other. Much like religion or politics, how we understand sex and gender are fundamental to how we operate in the world and inspire a whole range of opinions, often in conflict with each other. But in the last maybe five years or so, I've noticed some rather unusual ideas taking root. Number one is that distinct biological sexes don't exist. Sex categories like male and female are arbitrary and socially constructed, and sex exists on some kind of spectrum. Number two is that gender is completely divorced from biology, meaning that the gender you identify with and your outward expression of it aren't influenced by the sex you were born with. In my mind, denying these biological realities around sex and gender is to engage in a form of science denialism. Most troubling is that these ideas are finding a mainstream voice in scientists who also moonlight as gender activists, giving them a kind of scientific credibility. But unfortunately, denying science that's inconvenient to one's ideology makes it impossible to reach any kind of consensus on public policy issues. For example, thorny ones like transgender rights or gender disparities in certain career fields. Diving headfirst into these issues is our guest, Zach Elliott. Zach isn't a scientist or professional journalist, but rather an architecture student who sees himself as a kind of educator. Zach has written a short book on sex and gender called The Gender Paradox, and he has also started producing videos about these subjects for YouTube. I actually first became aware of him on Twitter, where I saw him debunking misinformation about intersex conditions, also known as DSDs, or disorders of sexual development. Zach and I spoke about how he got interested in this topic as a non-scientist, how intersex conditions are misused in discussions of transgender rights, and his step-by-step guide for writing an article that muddies the water around these controversial topics. But before we dive in, a quick reminder that we need your support to keep this podcast going. If you find value in interviews with leading scientists, journalists, and other thought leaders, consider becoming a member on Patreon. For a small monthly fee, members get benefits like early access to new episodes and their names mentioned in the show credits. Head over to sciencecentric.com support for more info. Zach, I'll, I'll go ahead and formally welcome you to the podcast. Thanks for coming on. Um, I've been following you on Twitter for, I don't know, maybe about a year or so and um, just got interested in what you're doing um, as I, as I mentioned before we started, we were talking about, um, sort of other guests I've had on, you're the first guest I've had on that isn't a scientist or sort of a working mm-hmm. science journalist. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think what you're doing is kind of more in the realm of like citizen science almost. Um, but, um, maybe you could just, uh, to start, tell us a little bit about, um, the Paradox Institute, this, this, um, sort of brand that you started and and how did you get into that yeah so i just say yeah thanks for having me too and i'm glad to be on here and to talk about this stuff uh so paradox institute really started it started in january february 2020 and so it's a organization i formed to help educate people on the topics of sex and gender and to do it in clear and concise animated videos videos that are uh, really clean animation, easy to understand, and give people a visual, too, mm-hmm. as they're listening to these topics. And I also, it was a way to, it was really a response as well to a lot of the science denialism in our culture surrounding sex and sex differences. And also just reinforcing the importance of biology when it comes to things like sex and biological sex and the differences between men and women on average, but also the similarities and how those, how the forces of biology and psychology and society form differences between individuals. Um, and yeah, yeah. So you're, um, 
but I mean, you're not you're not a biology major. You're um, an architecture student uh, architecture, yep. at Oklahoma State University. Um, how did you get interested in this topic as a as a non scientist? As a, yeah. um, and and by the way, I I don't say that in a negative way. I, I think people can come into can become interested in science, become gain a lot of expertise. Um, over time. So I don't, I don't say that with any kind of, um, as a put down at all. Oh yeah. Anybody can be interested in this stuff. And if they put the time into it and, and read and study things, they can really learn a lot and help, help people too. Uh, so yeah, I, I went into architecture. I love designing things, love being creative, uh, and designing things that people can use. But I also around, I've always been interested in psychology and biology as well. And around uh, 2017, this explosion of science denialism really came out of the culture, especially on college campuses, when it comes to sex and gender, particularly things like applied postmodernism and these critical theories like queer theory that, that says that sex is just a social construct, that these categories of male and female don't really exist, that they're fluid that you can opt in and opt out at any moment. And so that really fascinated me. And I wanted to understand like, where do these beliefs come from and what's wrong about them yeah. and, and what's true about some of them too and like some of, the, some of the grains of truth that they have. And so in 2017, I started looking at sex difference literature and research and whether it be from biology or psychology. And I started to get really interested, interested in that. And then also there was a memo that this guy named James Damore from Google wrote uh-huh. about sex differences. <laughs> and a lot of you can disagree with his uh, prescriptions or what he, what he concluded, uh, but he was presenting sex difference research about personality psychology, about uh, endocrinology, and even aspects of sociology and looking at how how that might impact people's life choices in the careers that they go into mm-hmm. on average. So I was interested in that too. And so I, I did research regarding the peer reviewed papers that he presented. I read into them. I studied that as well. And so around 2017, around that time, I, after doing a lot of reading, I also wrote a literature review of sex differences, just the mainstream sex difference research ranging from endocrinology to personality psychology to individual differences, understanding how those things might impact people's interests later in life. Uh And so that's really where it started and started to snowball. And I found it fascinating. I I love synthesizing research together. I love writing. Uh, I've, I had written two books before writing this literature review, just books about architecture and in my architecture school and studio. But then uh, with this literature review that I wrote, it really started to get uh, really interested in, in sex and gender. And then after, uh, after 2017, I took sociology of gender in uh-huh. 2018. Uh-huh. A class. And, yeah, a class. A college course. A yeah. college course. And that was really, really interesting. Uh, it was really enlightening to, to see where this mainstream science denialism comes from in part. Yeah, yeah. And sociology of gender taught us many important aspects about how gender, the behavioral expression of sex, is somewhat socially constructed right. and defined by society, which it is to a certain degree. But what they really focused on at the beginning was sex itself and how even sex is socially constructed, how even male and female are not reliable categories. Uh-huh. And they brought up things like intersex conditions and and explained that the idea of sexual dimorphism is flawed. And so that really, really fascinated me too. <laughs> you know, where does this come from? Why are they saying this kind of stuff? And so I saved all the presentations and the writing from that class too and the peer-reviewed papers that they presented us from sociology. And then in 2019, I wrote a book called The Gender Paradox. Mm-hmm. And 
that was looking at how the forces of biology, psychology, and society mm-hmm. uh, influence the differences and the similarities between men and women. Yeah. And that's, that's, I'm, can yeah. I just jump in real quick? I mean, mm-hmm. a theme that really comes up on this podcast a lot is this concept of the biopsychosocial model of humans, where it's like there's biological, psychological, and sociological factors that determine a lot of things. Um, right. Because if you don't integrate all those together, you can't have a full understanding yes. of human behavior. Right. Yeah. So I, I feel like what's happening a lot right now and, and what you're talking about is that um, there's people are very much focused on the sociological components um, and saying that the biological components of what makes a human, you know, how they are or how they behave in the world is not a, not a, not that important. And it's completely malleable. And it has connections to postmodernism and this sort of blank slatist ideology that, you know, that were born as blank slates and, and, and sociological factors completely determine everything about us. Um, I first right. got, I was first aware of this. Um, I was watching um, a sort of debate with, uh, on, on, TV, it's this Canadian show, The Agenda with Steve something or other. Yeah, Steve and, Lincoln. Yeah. I, and, I've seen clips of those, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was it was uh, Jordan Peterson, who's sort of a controversial figure, but he was... Are you familiar with this? Uh, um, yeah, I yeah. think so. I'm very familiar. Oh, it was... Wasn't it the... Uh, were they debating the Canadian, the Ontario... Uh, C-16? Yeah, Bill C-16. Yeah. Which I, which I don't want to get into, but um, yeah. it, it, there was a... a historian of science um on there from a canadian university was debating with jordan peterson and and i remember him uh or or it's a i think a transgender uh man but um i don't know how they identify but was saying well sex is completely constructed you know the biological categories are completely constructed this is maybe in like 2015 16 and i was just as a biologist i was going what like this is insane like (laughs) I, yeah. <laughs> why are you saying this? This makes no sense to me. Um, and I thought, well, this is just a fringe idea. And then as time went on, I just saw that becoming more and more accepted into the mainstream um, to the point where we now have, you know, PhD students um, and pr- professors saying, saying these, saying that biological sex is oh, yeah. a total social construction. I just, I, it just blows my mind that that idea has sort of spread and um i just yeah and it's coming from all kinds of people you know you got you do have phd candidates and and even biologists and then you have lawyers you have people that are elected to you know, positions of you know in in office like politicians and uh even there was a british prime or british uh, member of parliament don butler who said that babies are born without a sex and that we assign a sex to babies, you know? And so it's like, yeah, yeah, it's unbelievable. I, it really is. Yeah. Um, so my, okay. So a couple of, a couple of thoughts and, and I, I want to see what, what you think about this, but, um, I think that, um, let's see how to, how to get into this. I've been wanting to do a podcast episode on this for a while, but I've got so many ideas mm-hmm. in my head about this, but, um, hold on. Let me collect my thought here for a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there's this, I, there's this idea that came out of maybe second wave or third wave feminism of this idea that sex and gender are different things. Sex is, uh, you know, this physical, uh, hard thing that you can't change. And then gender is something that you kind of choose or gender roles are things that you can adopt or choose. And they're sort of societally constructed. I think there's truth in that. I mean, I think gender is the things that we associate with, with a particular sex, the, the gender roles and things have changed over time. Like men used to have Mm -hmm. long hair, you know, and that's become, sort of associated as being more feminine. I mean, everybody had long hair right. or, or, you know, the kind There's of definitely clothes. Yeah. Clothing. Yeah, clothes. Is, like, 
things. Men or... used to wore used to wear high heels in the like seventeenth, you know. Yeah, right. Like that, and like and this yeah. was like supposed to supposed to exude masculinity. Was was these yeah. high heeled shoes? Uh, yeah, I mean they they so, yeah they wore things that were were would be now be so, considered so, so feminine. Um, mm -hmm. And very frilly shirts and things. I mean, that thing, all that stuff can change. Um, but but they still yeah. would say, oh, okay, well, there's this, there's this, you know, there's males and females, and there's a, there's a, you know, biological difference there. And I think what happened is it went from okay, you can choose your sort of gender or your gender roles, to well, now you can just choose your sex as well. But yeah. there's like this hard um, biological reality that you you can't overcome um and i feel like that's what we're seeing now it's like this tension between people wanting to be able to make sex as malleable as gender but gender is uh it's just not the same thing i saw a gender activist recently arguing on twitter uh i'm not sure who she was but she had a doctorate i believe it was in some type of sociology of gender and she was talking about how the term sex is a social construct is perfectly valid, she said. And she was talking about how the meanings that we prescribe onto people's bodies is a social construct. She said that, and that is what sex is. We're prescribing meaning onto people's bodies, onto people's body parts. So why is a why is why do we call a boy a boy? Why do we why do we say that a boy will become a man? And so she's Coming at it from completely, uh, completely sociological mm -hmm. perspectives, but then, ironically, what she's also saying, she's really talking about gender in a way, uh, prescribing meanings or 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 social roles or expectations to people's bodies. Maybe I think what she's really getting at is gender, but there's this, this, forwarding that they did with in, in queer theory in the '90s, where they really took it a step further than the second wave feminists, where really now they're saying that yeah sex is a social construct too mm -hmm. and it's a it's a more of a political and a social decision as uh, a lawyer from the aclu said and so i do think that gender and sex they can't be completely separated because uh -huh. there's still a link there especially when it comes to behavior and, and personality and interests but it doesn't mean that gender is completely biological or completely sociological. Mm -hmm. uh, Heather Hying has said before that gender is the behavioral expression of sex. And so that's defined by biology and culture. It's that intermingling of mm. those two that define gender. And I think gender is really uh, about, like when we talk about behavior, it's really about averages. So like mm -hmm. on average, men tend to have these interests or personality factors and women on average tend, tend to have this, but then there's a lot of overlap between the two. Right. And so we could say that, you know, masculine would be a trait that is more common in males, but that women can also have. And then right. feminine is a trait common in females that, that males can also exhibit. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, gender is definitely much more uh, malleable and can change over time. But then you have sex, which is really set in stone at conception and through in utero development. Uh, but you still have that linkage there between yeah. sex and gender, which is important. Yeah, it's kind of a it's like a Venn diagram where you can draw you can there's sort of that overlap, yeah. even though they're yeah. sort of different concepts. Um, and, you know, what's interesting, too, if you read old papers in biology, they didn't make that distinction at all. Um, and, uh, and actually still to this day, when they talk about like the gender of chimpanzees or something, they're talking about their sex. So this, this, this was sort of a construct of a feminist construct, which I think is fine. I mean, it is sort of mm -hmm. teasing apart the, that bio, 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 psycho social components of things. Yeah. I think but the then important it's like, thing about that yeah. analysis is that with gender and the feminist perspective, it is important to, uh, to really tear apart regressive expectations and mm -hmm. regressive roles for the sexes. And that's a good goal to have. Uh, 
you can go too far when you put too much emphasis on the sociological component where you start denying mainstream science right when it comes to sex when it comes to just average sex differences that have been replicated you know just basic things yeah uh i think it's that that balance between the sociological and the biological but gender definitely there is an important component of defining it as as the uh as expectations or aggressive roles it's but then you also have more of the just personality and interests and that kind of things yeah. that are, that are yeah. not aggressive right yeah. yeah there's there's that overlap with personality research um and and the one the personality model that's that has the most validation is that big five personality big five. Mm-hmm. um inventory um and you know again on average women have display certain um traits uh on on average more than than men do it doesn't mean that so like agreeableness is one right and women tend Mm -hmm. to be on average more agreeable than men on average less emotionally stable than men and so Mm -hmm. on the aggregate um actually scott you i'm not sure you know the psychologist scott barry kaufman he has a great article blog post oh okay he's he had a great article um actually written on scientific American, which I don't think he'd probably get published these days, but, um, that looked at, well, these personality differences individually aren't that big, but when you take them all together, they have this sort of additive effect that being more agreeable, being more, less sort of emotionally stable, um, you know, the, these things kind of compound each other. And so, so we end up that's, with these big behavioral differences. Right. So that's the really cool thing about multivariate analysis. And when it comes to personality psychology like that, mm-hmm. uh, you can have these really close averages that like overlap a lot, but then like, let's say, you know, agreeableness, well, agreeableness, the overlap there is really large and right. it's about, I think 60, 40, that kind of thing. And but on the extreme ends, where you get to the tail ends of the graph, that's where the largest differences really show themselves, is on that you know, yeah. extreme agreeable or extreme disagreeable. And so you can simultaneously say that, that men and women share more uh, commonalities and overlap there on the average, mm-hmm. but then also that they're not at all alike on the extremes. <laughs> And so you can have like, that's why the most disagreeable people in the world are almost all men and the most agreeable people in the world are almost all women. Right. But then you have that average that really overlaps. Yeah. So that's, that's the really cool thing that I discovered when I was writing about personality psychology. Yeah. That overlap there and how that, you can have your cake and eat it too. (laughs) Well, and that's, and that's what got, you know, James Damore into trouble. Um, And I feel like what happens in those debates is that there are people that that I don't know if they're just ignorant of statistics or they're, you know, sort of arguing in bad faith and they want to smear somebody, but they take that to mean that, well, you're talking about all women or you're talking about all men or you're prescribing something when in fact you're just saying this is this is an observation based on, you know, good data and we're not saying that you have to fit in the middle of the bell curve you could be an outlier and that's totally fine but it is okay to say that something is atypical that it's not just on a statistical level on a statistical level yeah like and that's cool like i totally support that i i I love the diversity of people that's that's the cool thing about stuff like this like when you really understand the statistics the statistics you can really see that variation yeah and it actually i think understanding those statistical differences and the variation between men and women and within men and women really shows you the diversity and it also reduces the power that stereotypes have on people um, because when you understand that you know an average doesn't mean that all people are like this no. you can really see that full variation and I think it gives us power to really uh, deconstruct in the good sense like stereotypes you know yeah um and 
Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah. And, well, and and I I can see the flip side of it too. I can see that people don't like that type of research because there are people that will take that research and use it to you know justify saying or use it in a way that suggests that all like you should be that way or why are you so weird or this is you know you're right, abnormal yeah. and right it's they're, like they're prescribing a moral framework yes. onto yeah onto the person yeah. instead of just accepting in a non-judgmental way yeah what their atypical behavior is they'll they'll be like yeah this this is the average and this is how it should be you yeah know, and you're strange yeah, it's totally wrong fall in line yeah. and and you know i don't think um at least that's not my i i think you have to separate uh what is from what ought to be and people seem to have a trouble with that they they feel really um they feel fear, fearful about people talking about what is because then it's they're worried it's going to be taken as being prescriptive that's what i've noticed all the time when i'm talking about why there's only male and female sexes yeah and why we only have two and and how that occurred and how it works in development people will sometimes get the idea that i'm prescribing some moral view of the world of how it ought to be yeah uh, but not what actually is but that's that's not it's totally reverse of what what's actually going on yeah what is that there's two sexes but then there's a range of expression and identity that people can have and and you know there's no i'm not prescribing a moral framework at all people should be able to live the life they choose as long as it doesn't infringe on other people's rights but uh, it's it's important to recognize what is especially when it comes to things like sex yeah yeah so so you spend um you know quite a bit of time on twitter i've noticed sort of debunking yeah. <laughs> debunking I'll get tagged in quite a bit too people will tag me in and be like zach can you can you help with this or like check this out and i'll often quote tweet and i quote tweet i don't usually get into arguments with people mm-hmm. what i'll usually do is quote tweet the person to show my followers what they're saying and i also want to show my followers what a response would be and so when I do quote tweet people that I disagree with, it's usually not to convince them, but it's yeah. rather to show my followers and show others uh, kind of both model the behavior that we want to see in a conversation, but also show the scientific response to that. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there, there's sort of been a trend that I've noticed. Um, I think we alluded to this earlier, but there's these PhD students or, or professors even that will go on Twitter often and they'll write these long threads saying, you know, why sex is a spectrum. This is like, this is the idea that biological, these categories of male and female are ridiculous and, and, and it's actually a spectrum and there's all this stuff in between. Um, you had an interesting tweet that you posted the other day, you, you, you said there's like five steps or something to this, this kind of thread. Do you remember what those are? Could you share that? Yeah, I think the, the first, let's see, the first step I can actually, maybe I could pull it up. I can't remember it off the top of my head, but, uh, oh yeah. Okay. I got it. So, okay. So how to write a sex spectrum article in five easy steps. (laughs) So the first one is you show that sex is more complicated than XX or XY. Second, you employ your intersex wildcard. Three, you list sex determination mechanisms in other animals. And four, you conclude sex is on a spectrum. And then you argue that gender identity should replace sex in all aspects. And then bonus, you get to email Scientific American and get it published. So... <laughs> So this is, this is writing an article, not just not just a yeah a Twitter thread. Although those threads are kind of like mini articles, uh, so so we can actually we could go through each point and yeah, that w- I think that would be I think that, that would be yeah. interesting um, because I I think this is where on Twitter you're kind of you, these are the things that you're addressing as they come up. Um, so um, okay, let's do that. I think that's a good framework to talk about sort of uh, DSDs and things like that. Okay, so, so right, the first, so, first yeah. point is... Okay, so point number one. So 
Number one, show that sex is more complicated than XX or XY. So here, activists will point to chromosomal anomalies, chromosomal variations, such as XO, XXY, XXX, XXXY, and they'll claim that sex is more complicated than just the XX or XY model. And the problem with that is we don't define sex through chromosomes alone. Chromosomes are simply the genetic instruction, mm -hmm. which leads to sex development. And so if you change the instructions, if you maybe take the SRY gene that's on that Y chromosome and it translocates to an X chromosome in an XX fetus, mm -hmm. that XX fetus with the SRY gene will develop as a male. So just just for and, uh, the audience, so the SRY gene mm -hmm. is the gene on the Y chromosome that kind of kicks off the cascade of things uh, that need to happen for somebody to develop as a male, right? Right. Yeah. And it's that, it's that uh, yeah, it kicks off a cascade, total yeah. cascade of genes. And so if you, so, if you move that to somewhere mm -hmm. else, you can kind of artificially yeah. make that happen. Right. And... So that shows that, and it shows that we can still define male and female even in those cases. So the reason why we can define that XX fetus as a, as a male is because they develop the phenotype or the, the reproductive anatomy that supports small gametes. And so the key to understand why activists use chromosomal anomalies is if you decouple sex from the reproductive anatomy mm -hmm. and the function that that reproductive anatomy serves in the first place, which is to support the production of small gametes or large gametes, then you can argue that there's more than two sexes by showing those chromosome variations. But mm -hmm. the thing is, those chromosome variations still produce males or females because we define sex through that phenotype that you develop that relates to the gamete type. Right. And so gametes, yeah. again, just for the audience, I, I try to keep this, you know, uh, try to break things down into plain, plain language. But gametes is just a t scientific term for eggs and sperm, essentially, that, um, you know, and, and eggs are, are like huge compared to, to sperm, which are these tiny little things. And eggs have this huge amount of uh, nutrients and things that are needed for development. And sperm are just, just basically DNA and like a little... Mm -hmm. squiggly tail i mean that's, mm -hmm. how, <laughs> that's how i think about it i mean that's I said, a good way to think about it yeah i mean um but but you know i i think that from a biological perspective um and also an evolutionary perspective which i think is missing in a lot of these discussions what defines male and female um is is the is the gametes i mean this this is what you bring up a lot i notice when you're arguing or you know mm -hmm. kind of conversing with these um activists online um that that is what defines male and female right right that's the and it's the most objective way to define male and female because it's the one trait like gamete type that's the one trait that unifies or unites all sexually reproducing species. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's a wide range of sex characteristics. You know, asparagus plants, they don't have, like male asparagus plants, they don't have penises like humans, you know. It's <laughs> totally different. But they still produce small gametes, just yeah. like human males do. Uh -huh. And the small gamete in, yeah. And so um, that's that unifying trait. And that's why it's the most objective definition of sex. Right. Is gamete type. And then how that gamete type correlates to the yeah. phenotype the organism develops. Yeah. And that phenotype is that body morphology that supports those gametes. Yeah. And, and I've looked into that a little bit. Um, and I know you've, you've, I think we've both read a paper that, that sort of explains the origin of that. But it's so fundamental. I mean, there's no species that produce, uh, there's no like multicellular organisms or species that produce gametes that are anything but that there's always a big one and there's always a small one and you really have to go down into the, the through the evolutionary ladder to like these algae that maybe there's like a difference you know they, they don't have that big difference but anything that's multicellular 
is going to have a large it's going to have have sexes they're going to have one that makes large uh you know group or i don't know what you call that phenotype that makes large uh, mm-hmm. gametes and one that makes small gametes and it's just like universal so i think you're 100 percent correct on defining things that way and then you know what's interesting i think is interesting is that you know we we're very familiar with the xxxy system for getting sex ratios meaning we're getting like mm-hmm. a certain amount of egg producers and a certain amount of sperm producers but then there's all these other species that have all these different mechanisms mm-hmm. so there's like the birds birds are different um birds are zz and zw yeah but and, but the birds are like the male will be zz so they'll be the yeah. i think it's called the homogametic instead of heterogametic sex which right. is the one yeah that has the the same chromosomes instead of uh, two different chromosomes and humans the males have two different chromosomes xy and then the birds have xx or zz yeah. yeah and then you've got you know i know this from working on nature programs like um you know reptilian species amphibian species they they do it by temperature which is super weird but so so to to say that you know to say that sex is determined by chromosomes, that that's the defining feature, seems a little strange to me because there it's just one mechanism by which you can get sex ratios. There's all these other mechanisms by, right. by which, and that's all that nature cares about. Nature, you know, does not care how you got there. It what it cares is what's the end ratio because we need some of these large producers and some of these these small producers. Um, and actually I, I made a, I, I'm, I'm, I have a video in the works about this, about how do we, how do we, how we ended up there. And, um, I first actually became aware of it, uh, when I was writing a article in journalism school about, um, Mm. sperm competition. And I remember Mm. seeing this book and it was like saying, well, this is just a natural process by which we end up with a lot. We like, it just, it's happened probably multiple times in evolution that we end up with this, like, right. I like separate lineages. Kind yeah, of both converge on that uh, two gamete different size model. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it's not like mm-hmm. it's just a fundamental feature of of maleness and fem- femaleness. So like if we, we mm-hmm. can't we can't define it by these other characteristics it just doesn't work. So it's like you got to start there. That's like the ground floor. And then it's like, OK, now you right. can build up from there. Right. Right. So you can yeah. start there at the, the ground level of gamete type and then understand how how that uh, how different mechanisms produce the sexes right yeah and i made a video back in february with dr emma hilton she's a developmental biologist oh, cool. and we took a, a blog post that she made uh, called from from humans to asparagus females are females and she took all these different animals across the animal kingdom ranging from you know reptiles to bees to uh even mushrooms to asparagus, uh, hyenas. And we looked at all the different sex determination mechanisms in the video. And after every single one, we concluded how we recognize the female of that species. And the common trait is that she develops a phenotype that supports large gametes (laughs) every single time. (laughs) Right, right. Even, even uh, Even in asparagus plants, even in you know, bees, reptiles, everything, same thing. And that shows you just how stable, evolutionary sta- evolutionarily stable yeah. uh, those two gametes are across species. Yeah, it's a form. Um, all right, well, let's, uh, we could get into that further. Uh, there's a great paper, I forget the author, but uh, um, maybe I'll put it, throw it in the show notes, but um, that explains sort of how, how we ended up there. Um, I forget the guy's name. Um, I think... There's Do you remember the one I share a lot is uh, Jesse Latonin. Yes, and, that's the one. And yeah. Jeff Parker. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I they, think Jeff Parker came up with that, came up with a gamete competition model in the 70s. Okay. I believe. Yeah. And, yeah. and these are guys, I mean, these guys have no, they have no bone to pick with sort of transgenderism or anything like that i mean they're they're like botanists or something so they're they're really just looking at this from like a purely evolutionary standpoint um 
All right, so let's let, let's go down your list. Uh, yeah, so, so, so that's the first two. thing is is confuse everybody by t saying there's you know chromosomal differences. That's that's kind of right. First first step. What's what's number two on that list? Second step is employ the intersex wildcard, ah. and so I'll unpack what what intersex is and kind of understand why it they're used that way. Uh, so intersex is an umbrella term for a variety of congenital conditions that affect the reproductive system of males and females. And there's like 40, 40 plus of these conditions. Each one is unique and each one has different rates uh, uh, in terms of the amount of, of you know, percent of births that have these conditions. Uh -huh. And so these affect reproductive, reproductive development. You might have different chromosomes or atypical chromosomes for your sex, so let's say you might have XX and yet develop as a male, or you might have XY and develop as a female. Mm -hmm. uh, you might have differences in hormone production. So there's examples where a fetus who is XY, they have a genetic mutation in the receptor that receives testosterone, and that like masculinizes the body. So with a mutation in that receptor gene, they can't respond to testosterone in the womb. And so they develop a, a complete female phenotype externally. And so uh, these conditions often have uh, really serious medical issues where you have to have lifelong medical treatment, take mm -hmm. hormones. Many, most of them are infertile also. Yeah. And so activists will use intersex conditions because they want to show how the binary idea of sex is absurd. And they define the binary idea of sex as a male has to have XY, a penis, testicles, everything, and a female is always XX with ovaries, vagina, malarian structure. And so they set up this straw man where male and female are defined through these, these specific traits. And in reality, Male and female, as we discussed, are defined through the phenotype they develop to support gametes. And so with intersex conditions, inter most intersex conditions are still clearly male or female. Yeah. But the activists rely on this mismatch of sex characteristics in these conditions to argue that sex is not binary. Okay. And so... So, so somebody yeah. may have a mix of male and female traits or phenotypes and so they're using that as as an argument to say well there's sort of this spectrum of male and female that these aren't these aren't legit categories right they'll yeah. look at variation of chromosomes gonads hormone production genital yeah. morphology and they'll say that all these characteristics exist on a spectrum and they can be on like dials in yeah. every which way and they can just yeah. match and so um, when we're, t when we're yeah. talking about percentages, I mean, I know these DSDs mm. are very rare. Like what, what, what percentage of births are, I mean, are people right. that have this mismatch between say chromosomes and external, uh, you know, genitalia or, you know, what, what do we So with that really specifically with that genotype and phenotype mismatch, in cases of, you know, XY individuals developing as females or XX individuals developing as males, the percentage is around 0.02% of births. 0.02, okay. 0.02%. And um, 90, that means that 99.98% of births are clearly defined as male or female. Yeah. Now, there's, you'll also see the stat with intersex conditions, uh, that says that they're 1.7%. Okay. Yes, I've 1. seen that. 1.7, yeah, this 1.7 takes conditions that are developmental conditions just like intersex conditions, but conditions that are not as ambiguous, so to speak. They're more mm -hmm. clearly defined as male or female. And also, they also take a condition called late-onset congenital adrenal hyperplasia, Okay. <laughs> and they take that condition. It's a mouthful. Yeah. They take, they take that condition, and that condition develops after birth. And so that makes up 1.5% okay. of the 1.7%. Right. And those individuals are always clearly male or female. And so 
what you notice is that these percentages, when it gets up to 1.7%, uh, they provide this false idea that there's a lot more people that have this mismatch of genotype and phenotype than there really is. Yeah. And so that mismatch is only in the 0.02%, but not in the 1.7%. Yeah. So I think that people with that condition, uh, we'll call it L-O-C-A-H, mm-hmm. um, they, they get some of these uh, sort of hormonal in, uh, hormonal problems. Is it, It's women, right, that, that are you know, phenotypically women, and then they get this late Usually, onset right. uh, sort of condition where they maybe get like male pattern baldness and acne. I mean, it can vary in its severity, but... Um, right. And, and that's uh, it like... It usually doesn't affect males much. Yeah. It's usually, yeah, it usually affects females the most. I, I forget exactly how the hormone... But it's, um, you know, it's treated... I think it's fairly treatable... It's um, and, and, you know, that's the large majority of d- uh, DSDs or disorders of sexual development or. Uh, yeah, I think that's what the DSD stands for. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, disorders of sex development. You'll see yeah. differences in sex development. Uh, people have been using variations in sex development. Oh, OK. Uh, yeah. There's also. Like yeah. I've used uh, congenital conditions of sex development. I think that's it's pretty specific. So it kind of tells you that it's congenital, it's a yeah. medical condition, and it affects sex development. So there's definitely a wide range of terms, and and yeah. people, I think a lot of them are are perfectly valid to use too. So I've yeah. I've, I've seen that one point seven percent figure, um, and then I notice people round it up to two percent, and then they say. <laughs> Well, that's like as many people that have red hair or something or, right. or some, and they're like, God, so that just shows that, you know, these, these intersex conditions, these DSDs are so common that it's just, that's just, you know, shows and it takes the seriousness away. Yeah. It takes the seriousness away from those conditions, uh, by saying that there's common as red hair and, and it, it, they're really serious medical conditions. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's not a. It's not a happy days necessarily with some of these medical conditions. Right. You know? it's, right. <laughs> it's serious stuff. And so, yeah, it really is unfortunate that they're used that way by activists. And so, the, okay, yeah. so that's, that's number two. So, so bring in the intersex conditions. And then number three is? So three, list sex determination mechanisms in other animals. Okay. And, and we so, talked about that a little yeah. bit. Yeah. So that's kind of like a, a gambit to make people confused as to how we define sex. They'll be like, oh, there's all these different ways of determining sex in different animals and they're not all the same. So I guess sex is just much more complicated than male or female. Uh-huh. But the problem with that is that <laughs> all these different sex determination mechanisms <laughs> as we talked about still make males and females right. <laughs> across all these species. Right. As yeah. as defined by the by the gametes they produce, right. which are large or small, mm-hmm. uh, very large and very small. Not there's no there's no there's no overlap there. They're no, very, yeah, very no different. Okay, so yeah. that so we kind of talked about that and um, and the, okay, so what and what's the fourth one? And then four is conclude that sex is on a spectrum. Okay. So you take all, <laughs> conglomerate all that together. Sex is on a spectrum. And and then five is uh, you argue, and this is what I've seen a lot. I've seen this a lot too. So argue that gender identity should replace sex. So what you'll see happen in such as the piece "Sex Redefined" in Nature, they'll present all these things, like show that sex is more complicated than XX or XY, talk about intersex conditions, talk about sex determination mechanisms in other animals. Then they'll say that because there's not one parameter that takes over every other parameter when it comes to sex, mm. that gender identity should be the most reasonable parameter. And that's pretty much almost a direct quote from that article, Sex Redefined, at the end of that. And okay. so what they're really doing is, it's really an ideological redefinition of sex. That biologists, that evolutionary biologists, that developmental biologists don't, you know, it's not in the literature. I mean, this is, you won't find this kind of stuff in the, in the literature about redefining sex this way um and you'll see that ending across all these sex spectrum articles yeah i i just want to say that you know of course people can identify how they see fit and people also have the right to express themselves as long as it doesn't infringe on other people's rights but yeah uh, 
there's still an important layer, a critical layer that, that sex has, both for individuals, like individuals' health and the health of society. And so you can't replace, in all instances, gender identity with sex. Mm-hmm. There has to be a, a resolution there that's not a, just a replacement. Yeah. So, yeah. so the idea is that they want to be allies to people that are, you know, transgender. And so they're saying that, that because sex is a spectrum, this sort of bolsters this idea that gender also can be a spectrum. Is that the, is that the thrust of it? You're, you're kind of saying the opposite that they're, they're trying to erase sex differences, but it, it seems like they're kind of trying to bolster trans genderism or something mm-hmm. with sex spectrum yeah sometimes the activists will take it from they'll say that no sex is real and defined but gender my gender identity is woman or man but then there's also these kind of articles where they'll replace gender identity with sex by mm-hmm. saying that that there's not a single a single trait that differentiates male from female mm-hmm. that there's all these differences that overlap and it's so uh, they say that the line, the dividing line between male and female is arbitrary. Yeah. And they'll say because it's arbitrary, we should rely on people's internal sense of self to be the most logical mm. parameter for somebody's sex. Okay, yeah. So this, mm-hmm. gets, into, this gets into the other issues um, and, and maybe sort of the root of this, which is, you know, what's happening in society is, you know, we there's a push for greater acceptance of people who are transgender, which is great. I mean, I think we, I'll speak, I don't want to speak for you, but we both support that idea. Like I, you know, want to be more inclusive and, and, and have these people not feel excluded or ostracized. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's also, um, there are some areas I feel that are because of the biological reality of sex that it's, kind of impossible or really challenging to have people that identify in a as a particular gender enter um, that space. And, and the obvious one is, is sports, like women's sports, mm-hmm. transgender males or transgender, trans women wanting to enter, mm-hmm. um, you know, female sports um, because of the, and, and, you know, other people have talked about this at length, um, but it's... I, if you want to talk about that, I, I did yeah. a, I did a, uh, I worked with Dr. Emma Hilton on a video that hasn't been released yet, but it was based on a paper that, a, a literature review that she wrote with a clinical physiologist, and I can kind of tell you about the data that they found uh-huh. if you're interested in that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, so, think, yeah. I think I think it would be interesting to know why that is. I mean, is that is that what it addresses? Sort of why that's a problem. Yeah, it addresses uh-huh. the male sports performance advantage that's created from puberty, and how that relates to sports, specifically when it comes to transgender women undergoing testosterone suppression. Uh-huh. So taking taking hormones like estrogen and, and like reducing their testosterone and seeing how that affects uh, sports performance. Yeah, and so what they did was, there's three parts to it. They first looked at the baseline biological differences between men and women when it comes to sports performance. So we looked at, or they looked at uh, muscle strength parameters. They looked at the amount of oxygen you can utilize during intense exercise. They looked at bone length, bone density, uh, tendon strength and force. And they took all these parameters from you know, a lot of the mainstream literature around sex differences and physiology. And then the second part was taking those parameters, those baseline parameters, and looking at how that affects sports performance on average. So they looked at many sports ranging from cycling, track running, to weightlifting, uh, even baseball, like throwing, throwing speed, yeah, uh, hockey, things like that. And they found that the baseline advantage for males, just regular t- uh, typical males and females that are in sports, the baseline was 10 to 50% advantage for males, depending on the sport. Right. And then, so they had that baseline there, 10 to 
And then they looked at 11 longitudinal studies of hundreds of transgender women undergoing testosterone suppression for about a year to two years to see how much that uh, baseline sports performance advantage reduced mm -hmm. over that period. From, from just men versus women to mm -hmm. biological men undergoing hormone therapy to suppress testosterone. Right. Seeing that, right. seeing the effect. Yeah. Okay. That's, this is interesting. It's got my, got my so they, interest. <laughs> yeah. They took, they took that and then they compared these longitudinal studies and analyzed how much of that sports, sports performance reduced with those biological males taking testosterone suppression. And what they found was that even with one to two years of testosterone suppression, the baseline performance advantage was still, was only reduced by two to 12%. Mm. And the average was 5%. And so that means that these biological males that are taking testosterone suppression still retain about 20 to 30% of their advantage, oh, okay. depending on the sport. And so what they concluded was that because of that, the International Olympic Committee that maintains these guidelines for how you can get into the female sports category, they probably need to readjust their criteria based on this evidence. And the baseline for getting into, or the baseline for the International Olympic Committee that they set for testosterone was a certain, like a really, a pretty small amount. They said yeah. it was 10 nanomoles per liter. And it's like pretty small, and they, they make you reduce that testosterone to that level. And so, yeah, those lo longitudinal studies used yeah. those testosterone levels, and it just it didn't reduce it enough. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the performance advantage. That, that performance from, advantage, from, yeah. From, uh, from, from reducing the amount of testosterone available. Um, yeah. Interesting. Okay. So, so that shows that puberty has organizational effects on the body and on the yeah. muscles and on the bones. Yeah. Organizational meaning... It builds the structures and it keeps them there. And so even if you take testosterone away, the structures are largely maintained. Right. And so there would be you know, strength advantages, upper body strength in particular. Um, yes, very much sorts for of sure, things. upper body. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think my sense is that's where this, this science denial is sort of coming from, is that people want to allow transgender uh, people to, to have the, you know, full lived experience that they want to have. And I, I totally sympathize with that. Like I, I don't want to deny people, but then it's like, well, it becomes, um, you know, it sort of infringes on female sports and people that want to have a fair, you know, contest. Um, I was thinking yeah, about there's the a conflict of conflict of rights there. Yeah. That's needs to be addressed very carefully and very, with a very much yeah. in, informed scientific perspective, yeah. for sure. But I, I feel like the activist solution is just to say, you know, the phrase we see is trans women are women, period. Like, that's it, you know, like, so right. they should have, they should be able to, to be in any space that they want to compete in any, you know, arena that they want. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's science denial. Um, there's that there's that case of that runner in Africa that was um, I forget her name, Kiss, uh, Samana. Oh yeah, Castor Semenya, I think. Castor Semenya, mm -hmm. yeah. That that's that has a DSD, I believe. Um, that she is, has a DSD. Yeah. She is mm -hmm. actually chromosomally male, but has mm -hmm. some kind of congenital disorder where where she developed mm -hmm. as a female. And but still has like elevated testosterone levels. And, you know, uh, when you see uh, her that she has, you know, very masculine characteristics. And so there's been she a can, big debate around that about whether, you know, that there person has. should be allowed to compete in women's uh, track and field in particular. And that's where it gets even more complicated with with specifically those kinds of DSDs. Uh, there's some DSDs that 
if you develop as an XY fetus and then you develop as a female, that it doesn't really affect sports performance at all. Mm-hmm. But then there's DSDs where an XY fetus uh, can still fully respond to testosterone, but at birth they have this female phenotype or female body morphology. And so these are sometimes cases where it might be actually uh, accurate to describe assigning a sex or observing their sex that's been observed incorrectly technically. But there are, with Castor Semenya, it's, it gets really complicated because we don't, I don't think we have enough information about her DSD specifically. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's a DSD called 5ARD, but uh, that's, it's, it's pretty complicated, but uh, it's basically she can respond to testosterone still fully. Uh, and so that's where it gets really complicated with DSDs. And yeah, we need more information too. Yeah, so, and specifically how it relates to sports performance with those DSDs. Yeah. So okay, so let's see. We were talking about Castor Semenya. That's a little bit of a diversion because oh, yeah. it, it's such an odd case. But I it feel would take like, a while to get into it. But yeah, yeah, not for this time. Yeah. But it's it's like a um, it's become this sort of flashpoint. It's interesting how these flashpoints arise, and then you'll have you know people sort of th- these trans activists sort of stack up on one side of it and you know they they throw around you know you're transphobic you're you know whatever and then the other side's like well no you're in you're denying science and it just it just doesn't seem very productive um yeah yeah but it, but it you evolves <laughs> <laughs> yeah quickly but, but you're you, you know um when we first started talking you said you're you're kind of trying not to argue with people i think that's a that's a wise um you know that's a wise strategy because people have i've been involved with online forums and things for a very long time and it's like people become so entrenched in their positions and it's public and no one will concede anything and it just you know you go back and forth and i've wasted so much time on twitter like arguing with people being like no you're wrong and no you're wrong and and it's just like (laughs) you know if people just sat down and had a conversation like we're having you might actually get somewhere but twitter is just not not the place for it it's so much better to talk in person about this kind of stuff yeah Yeah. and it's complicated i mean that's Mm -hmm. that's like what makes it so interesting right is it's it it is so complicated it it affects all those things the bio bio it involves biology psychology you know sociology probably you know throwing economics and some you know other these other systems theory oh, for yeah. all i know mm-hmm. you know like um evolution i mean yeah so it gets into philosophy too sometimes philosophy yeah. i mean yeah it's it's fascinating I, I mean i can i can understand the attraction to it and that's why i'm interested in it as a as a former scientist and um but you know aside from uh you know correcting misinformation uh on twitter and you and you putting videos out on youtube what 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 do you have in mind going forward with this paradox institute is it going to become a an institute or you know are are you gonna (laughs) are you gonna develop it into something with more people or or where do you see this going for you personally so i definitely want to continue making videos really focused on sex and gender really focused on the both like the developmental biology and evolutionary biology of sex. But then, yeah, I think, you know, I, I started this to kind of form a, form a common, common, like an organization that's focused on a common topic and, and helping others learn about these kind of things. And so I think going forward, if it starts to get uh, more attention, I think bringing on other people might help too. And, and, um, collaborating more with others as well. Yeah. I've collaborated with you know, Dr. Emma Hilton a few times, and but just really collaborating from with professionals in these areas would be would be great. So I could yeah. definitely see myself doing that in the future. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think I think strategically that's a good idea. I, I when I worked for Scientific American I had the benefit of working on videos with all of these amazing journalists who had such a deep knowledge of their subject areas and it's really awesome i mean just to be able to tap that knowledge 
um, oh, rather yeah. than yeah, have I think... to, having to do all that primary re research on your own. Right. Um, right. So that that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and building building networks with people that share your interests. You know, I I love doing this, and it's and I don't have huge long term uh, like vision for the Paradox Institute, like where I, but definitely just keep keeping on building it. Uh, I'll keep making videos and yeah, I'm probably collaborating with others in the future too. Cool. And yeah. So, so one final question I'll ask you. So why is it called the Paradox Institute? So I want it, it actually comes from the book, the gender paradox that I wrote huh. and that gender paradox was really focusing on one, the, the contradictions within the postmodern activism within queer theory, those contradictions that are very paradoxical. And also the concept of the gender paradox in uh, social sciences, the idea that the more egalitarian a country becomes hmm. and the more, the more equal, in a sense, the more opportunities for people, the wealthier, that people's differences on average grow larger. People are more able to express their interests and their personality without fear of, uh, you know, social structures coming down on them and things like that. Uh, and so that's called the gender paradox where men, men's and women's interests on average will grow larger. And so that was kind of a main thesis of that book. And then when I was looking for a name for the Paradox Institute, I wanted to have some type of name that communicates that it's an organization that has like a common purpose that wants to uh, educate people through a common purpose or common uh, topic. And then uh, adding on paradox was really combining those themes from the book and the paradox of this science denialism that we're seeing in our culture right now around sex and these contradictions. And so that's, that's where it comes from. Yeah. <laughs> cool. I like it. Um, yep. So where can people find you uh, online? Where would they, where would you prefer that they find you? Um, and so where you can, can, I, me, get, where can yeah. I get your book? So you can find me on Twitter at Z-A-E -Z Lefty with a Y. And then uh, my books are on both Amazon.com and Lulu.com, L-U-L-U.com. Uh, they're published from Lulu, so you can order them from Lulu or Amazon. Yeah. yeah. And, Gender Paradox. Yep. And you've got your YouTube channel, of course. And a YouTube channel. Yeah. Uh, just You can type Paradox Institute on YouTube and find it there. And under each video, we have peer-reviewed sources. Everything is sourced. Yeah. So that's important, too. Yeah. That's fantastic. Um, okay, great. Well, uh, thanks so much for coming on. This has been like such a fascinating conversation. I learned yeah, some things. Yeah, I hope the audience awesome. learns some things. And um, just thanks again. Appreciate it. Thanks, Eric. Thanks for having me on. Well, that's it for this show. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. Email us at feedback at sciencecentric.com. Also, don't forget, you can support future episodes by becoming a member on Patreon. Head over to sciencecentric.com support for more info. The Science Centric Podcast is a FlowSpark Media production. Our audio engineer for this episode was Alexander James. Guest booking was handled by the always awesome Melissa David. Our intro-outro music comes courtesy of VitBasic. Thanks for listening, and until next time, I'm Eric Olson. Mm -hmm.